that's going to be really hard and I don't want to do it. That's an automatic thought. That's like a prosecuting attorney saying, Your Honor, this is why Dr. Ramsey shouldn't have to organize his tax forms. A judgment is rendered by the judge. You don't have to work on your taxes now. But only one side of the argument is getting presented. So we think about what would a defense attorney bound by the evidence but hired by you to look out for your well-being, how would they argue that case? Catching automatic thoughts and laying them bare. What, what am I actually saying to myself in my, my head? It can be helpful to actually write them out, hand write them out, to see them in black and white. Because when they're bouncing around in our head, tied in with the emotions and the next thoughts and the frustrations, they feel accurate. Oh, this is true. But if we see it in black and white, that's when we see the all or nothings, the can'ts, the nevers, the always. And that's where we can bring it in to say, yes, maybe I had difficulty with this thing right now, but I can't say that I never can do this well. ADHD Rewired, episode 99. This is the show designed to help those of us who have really good intentions and a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and consultant. We know that starting can be the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me thank our sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from Audible. For a free audiobook download, go to erictivers.com slash audible for a link for that free download and for some hand-picked recommendations, go to erictibbers.com slash audible for your free audiobook download. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of ADHD Rewired. We have another great episode for you today. I have an amazing interview that I'm really excited to share with you with my guest, Dr. Russell Ramsey. We talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, regarding ADHD. Before we get into this episode, I have a couple announcements and some congratulations that are due to a few people. Um, one, I want to congratulate my friend Tom Nardone on his 50th episode of the Tom Nardone Show. He also had a great co- or great uh, guest host. He had me guest host his 50th episode. Thank you so much, Tom, for inviting me on your show, and I wish you and Yvonne another 50 episodes. If you have not listened to their podcast, go check it out. You will be thoroughly entertained, I promise you. I also want to congratulate Rick Green from Totally ADD. He was just appointed, this is a Canadian um, honor, so I really actually don't know what exactly this is, but it sounds really important. He was appointed to the Order of Ontario, which I guess is the province's highest honor in recognition for his work in ADHD. And there's going to be a live broadcast on Wednesday, January 20th at 4 p.m. Eastern time. I'll post the link for that live broadcast in the show notes. So Rick, congratulations. And now that you're like even more important, can I get you to come back on the podcast? I think you already said yes. And then somewhere between you and me, someone dropped the ball. So if you're listening, you're invited to be a guest again to talk about your very important work that uh, you've done. No, but seriously, congratulations. That's, that's awesome. I have some more congratulations. Um, In, well, first of all, This is episode 99, which means next week is the 
centrarian, the, the center, there's some senti word that I'm not using correctly. It's the 100th episode featuring you guys. It's going to be an awesome episode. I've had my editor actually working on it for quite some time because it's piecing together a lot of you. We did some live recordings. I'm really excited for this. It's it's a great accomplishment. But can you believe I'm actually like 105 or 106 in? And February 9th, the 102nd episode, I no, yeah, 102nd episode, um, I'm going to be featuring my guest who's actually in my office with me. Um, he's a science teacher. He's local. And when I first met him, he said to me that one of his dreams is to be a guest on a podcast. And then as we were talking, he told me that he would actually really like to have a podcast maybe about science. So we recorded this maybe a month or so ago. And I just found out yesterday that he actually has already launched his podcast. And I've binge listened to all two episodes. It's an awesome, awesome podcast. It's called beautiful speck of dust. He, the way he puts different ideas together that are all science based, it's brilliant. It's interesting. It's entertaining. I highly, highly recommend checking it out. Even if you're not that into science, I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. Uh, so Alex, congratulations. And I can't wait to share your interview, uh, with everyone else in a couple of weeks. All right, uh, a couple more things. Thank you for not tuning me out and fast-forwarding yet for those of you who are still listening. And for those who hadn't, they will just never know what they missed. I want to thank everyone who came out to this week's uh, productivity webinar. And in case you missed it, well, you missed out on a really, really awesome webinar. But I'm going to be doing it again on Monday, January 25th at 11 a.m. Central Time. Just go to ADHDrewired.com to register. And uh, as we continue to travel along the space-time continuum, both space and time are running out. I announced last week that due to the rapid pace of the enrollment for the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group, that I'd be adding a second section. Well, the first section is completely full, and the second section is quickly filling up. If you're interested in this group, don't miss out. Go schedule your 20-minute consultation with me now. Registration ends January 26th. You can schedule that at meetme.so slash Eric Tivers. That's M-E-E-T-M-E dot S-O slash Eric Tivers. Or just go to ADHDrewired.com. If you are new to this podcast and you have no idea what the heck I'm talking about with this coaching group, you can go to coachingrewired.com. I have a feeling there might be some new listeners that um, just found out about this podcast from Linda Rogley and Terry Matlin's ADHD Women's Palooza, uh, which was this past weekend. It was a really, really fun event. So I want to welcome you if uh, this is how you found this podcast or you found this from some other means. So I am going to uh, stop talking now because you get to hear me again in just a second as I welcome our guest, Dr. Russell Ramsey. <laughs> welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. I am really happy to have in the virtual ADHD Rewired Studios, Dr. Russell Ramsey. He is the co-founder and co-director 
of the University of Pennsylvania's Adult ADHD Treatment and Research Program and an Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology in Psychiatry in the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ramsey has authored numerous peer-reviewed professional and scientific articles, research abstracts, and many book chapters. He is author of four books related to adult ADHD. Dr. Ramsey is a member of the Chad Hall of Fame, which I saw you get awarded for this year. Congratulations. And he serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Attention Disorders. And he has lectured across the country and around the world. And I've seen you speak many of times at Chad conferences. So, Dr. Ramsey, thank you so much for being with me here on ADHD Rewired. Eric, it's great to be invited here. So I know Looking that one of the it. things that you specialize in is um, is cognitive behavioral therapy for ADHD. And one of the things I want to actually do, I wanted to start this off with, in, in your book, uh, Non-Medication Treatments for Adult ADHD, um, in your very first page, you say in the introduction, let me be crystal clear at the outset. This book is not an anti-medication book. And as soon as I read that, I was like, okay, I can read this book. Because, <laughs> because yeah. I, you know, and I'm really glad that you titled it the way that you did, because I find that um, uh, when people talk about things that are all natural, I think that it's a slippery slope of dealing with marketing terms and things that aren't based on science. Right. Um, right. Talk a little bit about, about that, the, your focus on the non-medication treatment of ADHD. Part of this is a professional necessity. I'm a psychologist, so I cannot prescribe medications. Um, and when we started the adult ADHD program, it was actually the brainchild of my colleague, my psychiatrist colleague, Dr. Tony Rostain at Penn. And he approached me. So I always joke around. He was the Zuckerberg in this um, endeavor. Um, but what he said is, and he observed, he's a very noted child psychiatrist in Philadelphia, and he observed that many of his child patients would come back to him in adolescence, in college, and later on in life, and not grow out of it as people were supposed to. And this is around the time, a little bit after, in the wake of Driven to Distraction. And he said, I'd like to start a program that specializes in adults. He said, I can handle the medications, but it seems like more than that is needed. And we could both do the evaluation. So it sort of fell on me to develop the psychosocial treatment. I'm I was at and am still on staff at the Center for Cognitive Therapy, what can be considered the way the Grand Old Opry is to country music. This is what the Center for Cognitive Therapy is to uh, cognitive therapy. It's where Dr. Beck did his seminal research and writings. Um, and over the past, what, we're going to be coming up on our 17th anniversary pretty soon of our program, um, we and other groups around the country and around the world have worked on adapting CBT for adult ADHD. So um, along the way of that relatively narrow but important specialty, I would typically get asked, and I think I mentioned this at the, the start of the book, is people would ask me, well, what about neurofeedback? What about relationship treatment? What about coaching? What about all these other things? And you know, I thought the book was a good way to go through and say, what does the evidence say? about all these different treatments. And some, like the psychosocial treatments, namely cognitive behavioral therapy, probably rank alongside of medications as the second evidence-supported treatment. Some areas like ADHD coaching, the research is starting to build. 
Other places like uh, couples therapy, there still have not been studies done, but it seems like it's sort of where cognitive behavioral therapy was at 15 years ago. There are people with good models. They just have to be tested now. Mm -hmm. So different treatments are at different points along the evidence continuum. I know with like with the relationships, I know that uh, Ari Tuckman is beginning to do some work, um, but right. it's, it'll be interesting to see um, once there's a, a kind of more scientifically rigorous research design to his his research. Um, right. What that and kind Gina of Para and Arthur Robin have a forthcoming book just a couple of weeks from now, ADHD focused couples therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be some evidence regarding the difficulties couples pay, face, um, but at least in the in the book, there's outlined a treatment model that at least can be tested and other people can disagree with and modify but at least now we're working on let's finding out let's find out what works and, and that's how we get to our, our better understanding exactly. of everything that we do so let's let's kind of uh, break some things down uh, if we could when you mentioned um, you know where, where you work where you teach um, um, what is just cognitive therapy for it so um, think about you're not talking to a group of professionals. You're talking to everyday people who are just trying to better themselves and understand their ADHD a bit better. Right. What What is just cognitive therapy? And I'll expand it to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. And that, that, was, that was my follow-up question here. <laughs> no, no. It, it's, you know what? There's probably therapy geeks like me and colleagues, we could talk about, well, this is what you mean by cognitive, cognitive behavioral, but they generally get used interchangeably for our discussion. That'll be sufficient. Okay. So people ask, well, cognitive behavioral therapy, how is it different than talk therapy? Well, it is a talk therapy. If you're in a session with me, you're sitting in the same room and we're talking. What is different or what is emphasized more in cognitive behavioral therapy? I hope most good therapies draw on a lot of these things. The cognitive refers to how people think. Um, the automatic thoughts that go through our mind, the the reflex interpretations of what just happened. Um, so this could be you're expecting a friend to give you a call. The friend doesn't call at that time. There are many different possibilities. He, he, must, One be, is, he must be mad at me. He must be mad at me. It could also be uh, maybe his cell phone is dead or he couldn't find it or something else. What a jerk. He always does this. And that can be the subsequent. He's a jerk. He's angry at me. Well, what does he have to be angry with me about? If people are so inconsiderate. Uh, and But there's a host. But what happens is, you know, that automatic thought or it, and it's considered maladaptive or distorted if ultimately it's working against our well-being or mm-hmm. our overarching goal. So if our goal is, hey, but this is a good friend, I'd really like this relationship to move forward, well, then there might be some, it could be that first thought could be accurate. The friend could be, hey, I'm angry at you. I really don't care about this. I don't want to see you anymore. That is statistically possible. But what are some other possibilities? So the cognitive domain of treatment deals with Catching your thoughts, just the very question, what am I thinking right now? From an ADHD standpoint, that's an inhibitory reminder. Let me stop reacting Mm -hmm. and reflect on, all right, what are my thoughts telling me? Is that the only explanation? We've come up with a cute little metaphor um, of that's a way to think about. And part of the reason we come up with these little metaphors is a lot of, a lot of, there's a lot of good things that happen in treatment, in coaching, in the actual room or during the discussion. The problem is making it portable, making it sticky so it goes with people and gets used at four o'clock in the afternoon, 10 hours after session or however right. long it's been. 
um, we talk about the automatic thoughts being like a prosecuting attorney making a case against a friend against about a task. All right, I should really, I really this year want to get a head start on my taxes, so I should really start organizing all the W two forms and whatnot that are coming in. But you know what? That's going to be really hard, and I don't want to do it. That's an automatic thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so we think about that's like a prosecuting attorney saying, "Your Honor, this is why Dr. Ramsey shouldn't have to organize his tax forms." And what will happen is. A judgment is rendered by a, the judge. Okay, gavel on the table. You don't have to work on your taxes now. Um, but only one side of the argument is getting presented. So we think about what would a defense attorney, bound by the evidence, but hired by you to look out for your well-being, how would they argue that case? Well, Your Honor, we're not talking about filling in the uh, the actual online form yet, just collecting envelopes, opening them up, and organizing them. Um, and yeah, once I get started, it's usually not that bad and I can reward myself. All the good coping skills we know will help with adult ADHD, mm-hmm. but it's the implementation. So the cognitive realm of treatment on one level is dealing with automatic thoughts that can get us off track. Um, and it may be based on our own history. Oh, in school, whenever I had an essay or a big project, it was always awful. I'd work twice as hard as everybody else, but still not get it done or be rushing at the end. And these might be real evidence, but it doesn't necessarily transmit, translate to the task at hand. Let, let's, I, let's dive in right here, if you could. So um, one of the stories that I tell myself is that I'm a bad writer, that it's, that it's painful for me to write. Right. I had this experience when I was in my undergrad um, or I got an incomplete in a semester due to some, com- some medical issues right. and talk about like painful writing experiences with ADHD. I spent nearly an entire semester working about eight hours a day to complete a three page paper. Right. So I, I have no doubt in my mind that that experience has highly influenced how I think about myself as a writer. Now, I'm always looking for, okay, what, what's the, let me find the, the pieces of the evidence that disputes that thought. Have I ever been able to, you know, pound something out pretty effortlessly? Sometimes I am. Right. And I think some of my, you know, my, my, perfectionism. I often say that I'm a perfectionist in recovery. Um, <laughs> so if you were working with a client who is struggling with writing, having a, you know, some similar uh, challenges uh, with writing based on past events, basically what I've laid out for you, how would you work with that client? Right, right. Because seemingly the prosecuting attorney says, hey, we have evidence, eight hours a day for a three-page three paper. Who in the right awful. mind would want to write? If with that experience and it, it, you know, usually when we lay it out like that, the phrase is, you know, what, it makes perfect sense then that you're reacting in this way based on that outlook. Now, this th- and I think this is a beautiful example because I think this is one of the key adaptations of the the CBT model for ADHD, where people will say, "Hey, I've got evidence." Yeah, I can point out there's been a couple times, but maybe I still would have had to spend ten hours writing the three page paper. It's still a grind. Mm-hmm. Well, so we would say, well, the defense attorney, I mean, the prosecutor wins. Well, no, because that's where, were you aware you had ADHD at the time? And were you trying to write the same way you had for the previous 12 years of school that didn't match, you know, good coping with ADHD? Or is that something that you had insight about later? Or even if you knew you had ADHD, had you gotten specialized support? Because that's how, and this is a nice transition into the behavioral side, there are ways you can do writing differently. So yes. just like I said with the tax forms, okay, I can work on taxes by just opening envelopes. 
just like with writing, can you sit down and spend 15 minutes organizing what you want to write? Don't write, but just be it a formal outline or just filling out index cards with just diverse thoughts mm-hmm. and then ordering the index cards, making it more manual, something that you can do. And that's very often what we fall into with the behavioral side of things. How do we take these vague, important goals like doing taxes, writing, and turn them into actionable steps? Breaking, it's the proverbial breaking down the large task into the component steps, but how do we actually do that mm-hmm. and turn it into something that's actionable that we can actually then do and follow step by step? And then there's looking at from the behavioral piece, how does that, uh, how, what's the relationship between that and our emotions? So behaviorally, you know, I, I use voice dictation, I use mm-hmm. mind mapping. Um, so I have all these other things. I, I do a podcast because I have all these ideas, but writing is not my, it's not my strength. At right, least that's right. what, I, what I tell myself. So then how do we deal with the, the emotional piece? Because we know that emotion is so important, not just the, po- the negative, but also understanding the positive, what kind of gets ex- excited about you know doing something. I have this, this kind of dream, this, call it a fantasy if you want to, about I'm going to write a book because I really want to write a book. And the first like sentence of my book is when I sat down to write this book, my my core belief was that there is no way that I can write a book. That's, that's the vision that I have. And that's my starting point. I know my first sentence, what happens after that? I haven't figured that out yet. (laughs) Right. Right. Like Stephen Wright, my favorite comedian says, um, I'm writing a book. I've done all the page numbers. Now I just have to fill in the rest. (laughs) No, but, but you actually, you beat me to the punch. I would say that's, it's another level of cognition, the core beliefs. So the automatic thoughts you know, Freud talked about a pre-conscious, the, the sort of self-talk we have just outside of awareness, but if we're directed to it, we can notice it. Most of our thoughts are neutral. Mm-hmm. I'm hungry. What do I want to have for lunch? Where did I park my car? Um, these core beliefs, they get built up over time based on they can be very positive experiences. Somebody who's a good athlete has confidence in the big game to say, you know what, if I just keep working, somehow good things will happen. But they can also be maladaptive or negative because we have this self-view of I'm not good at X. Not that we have to be good at everything, but there are some things that we can go, hey, I'm competent enough that I can complete a writing assignment or whatever. And part of that is in overcoming those beliefs, it is also challenging the the emotional learning that went into the accumulation of those frustrating experiences. So the, the cognitive piece is recognizing, well, my belief about myself, say, as a writer, and then it might be expanding that. Well, what are different ways to write? And um, yes, writing a three-page assignment in college is different than a book I'm going to write where this is what I want to say. Um, and I'll have editors working with me and things like that. Um, there is an emotional exposure piece of if there's something we want to do that was difficult in the past, just like getting over a phobia, a traumatic experience, even like public speaking anxiety. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it's can we tolerate the emotion enough, ways to bring it down, challenge the negative thoughts, but eventually engage in the behavior and sometimes by steps. Okay, I'm nervous. I'm nervous about the session presentation I want to do at the Chad conference in 2016. Um, well, one, do I have a plan for what I want to say? Because 
that can reduce some anxiety. And then you have something you can practice. Then you can start practicing it in front of the dog with nobody else watching, saying the words, doing the behavior. Well, dogs, some people will argue dogs are people too, but the dog's not going to be in the audience. And where do but you stand on that issue? Dogs are people too, or at least they, <laughs> they probably have um, more run of the house than I do in my own house. Um, but, you know, there are ways to break down the anxiety into manageable steps. It doesn't mean it'll all go away, but one of the other principles is bringing it into these tasks. Most of the time, there will be, it's normalizing. I don't have to feel anxiety-free to do taxes, to write the college paper, to write the second sentence of the book I want to write. Um, and very often by being able to tolerate it for two or three minutes, mm-hmm. usually once we're engaged, then we're dealing with the reality of the situation and we might get stuck on the second sentence, but now we're doing something. So it and sounds usually like you're talking yeah. It sounds like you're talking about kind of exposure and response prevention work. Exactly. Um, can, can you, can you kind of talk about that um, in a very kind of practical way? What, so that idea of kind of leaning into something, why that's effective, why that works? The reason it works, the theory behind it is... Um, For, we first, get describe anxious. and define what that is. Exposure and response prevention is there's usually some sort of behavior that you otherwise want to do. Um, but you find yourself typically avoiding it such that it's causing problems in your life. So it might be somebody afraid of driving across a bridge due to the thought that the bridge could collapse. And we could say there's evidence in the history of the world, bridges have collapsed. And so the person might add two hours to their daily commute, driving up the coastline, waiting to go across where there's no bridge. And that becomes onerous. It could be um, getting up in front of other people and talking. That could get in the way of maybe if you're not doing conference presentations, a class presentation, things like that. Um, there can be a host. It could be a task that nobody else knows that you're worried about writing or math or I'm going to do something wrong on my taxes, whatever. So there's a specific situation and a, a strong emotional response. Right. That leads to behavioral escape and avoidance to your detriment. People will say, well, I wait until the last minute with taxes or I don't like getting up in front of people. But if generally you can do it um, and most people will say, well, once I'm up there, it's not so bad. Well, that's that we could say is the normal range. Just like, I mean, it's a variant of, well, doesn't everybody have ADHD? Well, yes, people will have problems with organization procrastination, but not to the degree that it happens repetitively and ends up causing problems in their life. Mm-hmm. So the exposure is the only way out is through. You eventually have to face the task that you're avoiding, but you can do it in progressive steps. So you don't have to go across the Golden Gate Bridge right away. You can go across a local park and practice standing on a little walking bridge over a duck pond that even if it would collapse, it's like five feet. What if you're afraid of ducks? Well, that's another question. We we have to disentangle and really find what the fears are. You know, um, so it could be that. And even with ducks, it would be a progressive exposure, breaking it down to, can you look at a picture of a duck, right. a YouTube video of a duck, maybe a little fake dog toy duck? You know, There's progressive things that you can do to approximate the real thing and work your way up the ladder. Um, and then the response prevention is being able to stay with it long enough that your anxiety goes up. Um, and it can only go so high. If you Mm -hmm. do nothing, your anxiety is going to max out 
and it eventually has to go down. But what happens, we typically will say, this feels awful. I've got a great cure for this. I'm running away. Right, because it works in the short term. It works in the short term, just like procrastination works great for two minutes. Um, And if we say, I'm going to take a break and then come back to it, and we do, great. That's not procrastination. Um, But it's when we go away, we run out of time, and then we take an incomplete in the class, you know, taxes, we they get handed in late, or we have to get a deferment or whatever. So the exercise of exposure and uh, response prevention is repetitively facing a task long enough that the anxiety goes up um, so that it starts coming down. And the thought being, and actually the, the research supports this, eventually it's, in effect, you're boring yourself out of the anxiety. You're sitting with a duck or on a bridge or with a task long enough that Eventually, it starts coming down and it's almost like, oh, I'm just walking across the bridge or let me just start the paper, you know, things like that. Because in a sense, you're you're rewiring your brain when you do that. You know what? There's there's been some research that suggests that that behavioral treatment does have positive effects on the amygdala. And this is in research with obsessive compulsive disorder. But the theory still holds, even if we're talking like ADHD Let's let's talk about um, OCD for a moment um, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which, you know, in some ways I sometimes look at when I'm working with with clients with ADHD, that having a little kind of uh, touch of obsessive compulsive personality disorder is kind of a treatment goal. Um, You know, I, I. I, well, I think it was uh, Dr. Roberto Olivardia that said, you know, the difference between OCD and OCPD is that someone with OCPD, they're just anal retentive about certain things and they're very well aware of it. Right, right. It's sort of a, a, a obsessive compulsive personality style. That would be the classic type A personality. Detail-oriented, perfectionistic, rigid. And part of the thinking, one, we could say, well, that might coexist with ADHD, just the random genetic variation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a thought that sometimes it develops as a compensatory style that something that we would consider adaptive in ADHD world, put your wallet and your keys and your cell phone in the same place every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's good coping for most people, but the person who um, comes across as very rigid in doing it. I have to do this. I can't set things down to let the dog out first. I have to do that um, first because they know or they have past experience that if I don't do it, there's a decently high likelihood I'll set it down, forget about it. It'll get under something and then tomorrow morning. So it becomes like this very rigidly followed rule, which makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And we certainly, I, I would imagine you do with clients, I do, we would preach yeah, you want to be as regular with where you put those things as you can be, even though there's going to be exceptions to every rule. Or tell you what, if you can hold on to them for the time being while you let the dog out, then while the dog's doing his boy, dogs are working their way into the conversation <laughs> today. Um, then walk it over to the basket, then go get the dog, things like that. It's there. There are ways to keep with the spirit of the coping rule, but that that would be like one of those OCPD traits, the personality style traits that we'd say it might actually, even if we'd say, well, three percent of it is excessive, the other ninety-seven percent might represent it's a good way to manage ADHD, like somebody who has a certain routine that they do once they get to the office every day. Just like looking at a non-clinical population, um, 
golfers as they approach the tee, they'll do practice swings or a baseball player. Like I know Ryan Howard with the Phillies, you know, he has a certain routine he goes through every time in the batter's box. And it's just part of these uh, basketball player will bounce a certain number of times at the free throw line. There's a certain rhythm that helps you know, prime behavior in a positive way. And that's what we want with ADHD to make many of these, many behaviors more habitual, routine. So that way we don't have to use as much mental energy mm-hmm. to reinvent the wheel every time. So in your, uh, in your clinical work, what are the, um, you know, we, we started the conversation talking about some of these automatic negative thoughts. Right. What would you say are the most common uh, automatic negative thoughts that you see in in you know, your your population of, that you work with, right. with adult ADHD. One of them related to procrastination. I'll give the anecdotal one, and then the evidence based one. The anecdotal one was um, emotional reasoning. That is thinking with by how you feel. I feel stupid, so I must be stupid. Mm-hmm. And it ties in with what we were talking about before. I feel like. I'm a bad writer, or I feel like this is going to be awful. I'm going to be sitting here writing for four hours and get two sentences down. It's anticipating, and it might be drawing on past experience, but how the emotions overwhelm the logic of, well, even if if I can sit here for 30 minutes, I can probably get at least some work done. Then I can stop, reward myself, come back later. The stuff we all know, but it's how the emotions sort of hijack it. Um, Now, we... We and colleagues did a study recently where we had um, patients who came through our program, and it was an IRB-approved study. It was a chart review of individuals who came through our program for an initial evaluation, and they completed an IRB, for those that don't know. Oh, Institutional Review Board that just reviews all research just to make sure um, subjects' well-being are protected, it's ethical research, and it gets a stamp of approval before we can move ahead and do it. Thank you. Sorry. Um, Nope. Thank you. We reviewed um, the the charts for a certain number of patients who came through who conv- uh, completed a cognitive distortion questionnaire, and to our surprise, we found that the number one distortion, emotional reasoning, was number two. Number one by four to five times was perfectionism. Mm. <laughs> now I can there, endorse that too. <laughs> yeah, well, but there there is there is back end. Uh, perfectionism, meaning at the end of the task, the paper is otherwise done, but the person reviews it one more time to see, well, you know, should this be a semicolon or a colon, or is there a better word? They have a hard time letting go because it's not as perfect as it can be. So that's sometimes where we see that type A personality or, you know, just nothing good enough is not good enough. Mm. We're thinking, and this goes beyond what the questionnaire could tell us, but Our hypothesis is many adults with ADHD might have front-end perfectionism. That means circumstances have to be just right in order to get started on a task. I have to be in the mood to write. I have to be in the mood to go do the lawn. And if there's some discomfort or something else, we're going to be more likely, even though we logically know I'm going to eventually have to do this task, it's used as a justification of let me wait until I feel better or more in line with this task, which runs the risk of that being the working at the last minute or trying to catch up with things that the person's then scratching their head saying, I had so much time to do this before. Why didn't I? Well, because nothing's ever going to be perfect. And it cycles back to your comment about handling the emotions. The truth is most tasks that are affected by ADHD, I mean, 
it can get in, well, even recreational tasks. Hey, I want to go for a bike ride, but you know what? The bike's all the way out in the shed. I don't feel like walking all the way. I'll do it later. And we don't get around to it. Or it could be most tasks, most chores and errands, we don't want to do them. When are we ever in the mood to unload the dishwasher right. or things like that? Um, so it's going to require some degree of investment of discomfort to get engaged in the task. And then we find hopefully the anxiety or the distress goes down. And then it, we build up our sense of competence saying, this isn't that bad. It's taking me like five minutes and it feels good to get it done. Mm -hmm that positive reinforcement that gets cut off. And, and that's where we build confidence and competence. But don't we also well, know that the, the, AD, the, in the research, the ADHD population doesn't have that same kind of dopamine hit of it feels good to get it done. And that's one right. of the, the, the challenges with engaging in mundane, boring behaviors. Right. Or at least at the outset. And, and there's probably some that comes with it, but that's why also the, it's one of these reminders that people will, nod yes to, but have a hard time implementing is actually setting up rewards. Hey, when you get back from the bike ride, how are you going to reward yourself for keeping up with your exercise routine? Or, you know, after, you know, unloading the dishwasher, doing 30 minutes of chores, what's going to be the payoff? What's the carrot at the end of the stick to make it external and tangible? Mm -hmm. That way it can enhance whatever dopamine might get stirred up. But there's also something that you can point to to say, uh, I get this for doing that. And then that's, that's also learning. In uh, in my uh, online coaching groups that I do, one of the uh, the um, exercises that that we do uh, as a group is everyone in the group will create a star chart. This is, these are adults, yeah. and yeah. you know, I one of the few blog posts I ever even wrote uh, was called "Star Charts Are Not Just for Kids." Absolutely, and it's so it's really powerful when we can visually see um, what we're kind of aiming for and and create a measurable objective that we're reaching for and making a realistic objective that we're going for. You know, I have a lot of clients who, you know, they're, they're all about, all right, let's do the star chart. Let's get our, I'm going to work out seven days this week. And mm -hmm. when's the last time you worked out? 1982, you know, yeah, and it's, right, right. It's, okay. So let's just get to the gym and give yourself a star and you can just go yes. home once you get there tomorrow, right, right. change your clothes and give yeah. yourself a star. You know, it's, it's that small Low, incremental lowering change. the bar yes lowering yes. because usually once you change your clothes now you're exponentially more likely to go to the gym because it's a behavioral priming we're talking what yes. you're doing and breaking down the large task into small steps creating behavioral recipes somebody might say i cannot cook Okay, you cannot cook. Can you get a saucepan out of the cabinet? Can you fill it with water? Put it on this thing we call it's a scaffolding. Stove. It's scaffolding, and we can do the same thing behaviorally. Don't worry about going to the gym. Can you push yourself out of the chair, turn off the TV, and go put on workout clothes? Now, all of a sudden, you're priming. You're disengaging from the other task and priming yourself for all the positives. And it, the positive can be, I just want to get the workout out of the way today so I don't have to do it tomorrow on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. um, but then, but that's, I mean, it's, it's elegant and all that goes into it. It requires stopping a behavior, re-engaging in another behavior, and then following through the sequence. And we're, you know what, the thing is people will get overwhelmed with, oh, everything that goes into working out and getting in shape. We're talking about actually some very small pivot points. So it's really like, if you can make that shift into just putting on shorts and a t-shirt, nine times out of 10, you're going to work out mm -hmm. and have all the benefits that come with that. And then that keeps itself with effort, but keeps itself going. It keeps a momentum going and a lot of other things, unloading the dishwasher, whatever. I know uh, some clients that I've worked with and I've even done this myself, but when I've kind of fallen out of my workout routine and when I really want to get back into it, 
I will go to bed in my workout clothes. So when I wake up, exactly. it, it, I'm, I'm already ready to go. Right. Um, I remember several, several years before my son was born, I even, I had my exercise bike in our, in our living room. Cause it, I, it was, I wanted to make it as easy as possible to engage Absolutely. in that activity. I know for myself, like going to a gym, like I just, I won't do it. Like I, I, yeah. I, I I'll do it for a week. And then like, oh, there's so much hassle to, you know, get go and drive. So I know for myself, I know how important exercise is. I mean, what a great behavioral right. model that you can look at for building oh, exercise routines. And, and you know, the, the other important thing, and this is part of CBT coaching, whatever it's personalizing. So one person, it might work having the gym to go to and come home from somebody else. It's like you said, having the bike in the living room, the stairmaster, whatever, something that's more local mm-hmm. because, and even like you said, with the bike downstairs, well, it down in the basement, it's a concept up here. It's a reality. Right. And then you can see, you know, the bike, it's, it's a behavioral prompt for, I can see myself riding it. It's a nice day. Let me go do X, Y, and Z. Let, let me ask you this. Anecdotally, do you see with your, with your clients, because uh, I see probably about 10 to 15% of my clients where the whole kind of start small and grow doesn't work for them or any, where what they seem to respond to is the, what would almost seem like that's kind of an absurd idea. Like they haven't worked out in five years and now their goal is to, to do it for an hour. The first, like, for 10 to 15% of the clients that I work with, it seems that sometimes those starting with those stretch goals seems to kind of motivate them more to get started. Um, do you find that? Yeah, I'd say probably about one in 10. So around that 10%, either there's there needs to be a, a bigger carrot, if you will, and maybe it's a bigger time frame. And I view it as empirical. Well, if we can come up with something that's big enough or somebody who says, I need at least a four-hour work period, well, when are you going to find that? And if it's on the weekend, how are you going to make sure when it comes to be like 10 o'clock on Saturday that, you know, what's going to be the assortment of circumstances, situations that's going to increase the likelihood that you get engaged and follow, you know, follow through on that? So, you know, I think it can be personalized. And so we can, like I talked about lowering the bar. Well, we can adjust that bar for each person to find out what it is or is there is it the reward that goes along with a longer work task because hey if i work for four hours i deserve a bigger reward than a star on a chart even though that could be big enough maybe it's a bigger star and a bigger chart or something like that but it's just whatever works for the person it just takes a little longer to figure out um what the situation is or sometimes the person says i'm really good at starting but then it's about halfway through, I lose steam, I lose mm-hmm. motivation, and I don't circle back to it. And it's how do we keep motivation going in the middle of the task to get through to completion? Well, speaking of being in the middle of the task, we are about in the middle of our discussion today. So what we're going to do right now is take a quick break. And when we come back, I asked listeners of the ADHD Rewired Facebook group, um, for questions that they wanted to ask you. So I'm going to, uh, when we come back, I'm going to share some of those questions with you for you to share with our listeners. We'll be right back. Hey guys, it's, it's me, Eric, your host. Um, so this is the 99th episode. Did you notice that I haven't missed a week? And, um, I just wanted to say, uh, did you notice that? Cause that's a pretty uh, awesome ADHD Everest. You know what else is an ADHD Everest? joining the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group. I actually just made that connection up. I had nothing planned for this mid-roll promo other than I wanted to just remind you that time and space is running out. Three 
days of coaching a week for 10 weeks. Each session is 45 minutes up to an hour. If you want to help with planning your week out, we do that on Mondays. On Fridays, we check in to see, hey, you said you were going to do these three goals at the beginning of the week. Did you do them? If so, awesome. If not, let's explore and discover what was the lesson learned. And then I will ask you during the session, hey, if you had any ahas, what were they and what can you do right now so you remember them throughout the following week and beyond? On Wednesdays, we have an alternating format. We rotate between the adult study hall and the mastermind session. The adult study hall, so imagine this. So you remember the Brady Bunch when you had nine people kind of in squares? So we have 12 plus me, that's 13 people who are on video conference in a video conferencing room. And we for the first couple minutes, we're going to say, hey, what are you going to work on? I might say, yeah, I'm going to go through my mail. And maybe you're going to say, oh, I've been putting off this email that, that I really want to send out. It'll probably take me 10 minutes, but I've been thinking about it for weeks and weeks. Maybe someone's going to do laundry and someone else is going to cook. That's what adult study hall is. We do the important things, the things that are both boring and important. And I thought it was interesting that the last session is actually on tax day, April 15th. So I have a feeling I know what a lot of people are going to be doing during those adult study halls is finishing their taxes. On alternating Wednesdays, we have our mastermind session. What is the mastermind? Well, imagine being sitting in a seat where you get to share for three to five minutes one specific challenge that you are having. And then for 20 minutes, everybody in the group is going to help you with that specific challenge. It's really powerful. All these sessions will be recorded so you can always go back and watch and listen to these sessions over and over again. Our home base is in a secret Facebook group. We use the Zoom video conference platform. There are the details of this coaching group. If this sounds good to you, and I think it might, go to coachingrewired.com. You can see all the information that I just shared with you right on that page. Schedule your consultation call with me at meetme.so slash Eric Tivers. We are filling up quickly. Our first group is completely filled. Our second section is right now I'm looking at we're 50% full right now, although that can change by the time this is released. We meet between one other detail, and I'll just add it in this order because that's just what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> we meet between the hours of 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The way that works is once you are in the group, I'm going to send out a link on, it's called Doodle, doodle doodle.com. It allows group scheduling to be done really easily and quickly. So I'm going to send you this link that's going to share with you on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays is when we're going to be doing this group. It's going to be between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Central Time. You send back to me when you are available during those times, and then we're going to create our master schedule for the entire 10 weeks. Orientation, which is when we do the scheduling, begins February 1st. Coaching actually begins on the 15th. I'm going to be on vacation for a week in between there. So registration closes April 26th. We're going to get everything scheduled, set up, logistics, and then we're going to be going together, two groups together, 
we're going to get our ADHD rewired. I'm so excited and just thrilled by uh, how many people are showing interest in this coaching group. It truly is an extraordinary experience. I've created the group that I would want for myself. I participate in this group just as much as I lead this group. Talk to any member in the community who has been part of this group. If you um, post, if you are in the Facebook community and you say, "Hey, has anyone been a part of the uh, coaching group in the past?" I'd love to talk with you. Feel free to talk with anyone who has been part of those uh, coaching groups. Listen to episode ninety-eight, or talk to Nisha um, about her experience. Go to coachingrewired.com. I have um, audio testimonials from past members of the group. This is a really exciting time. This is a really exciting program. And um, that's all I have for you. We're not going to do any other promos during this session because I want you to focus on one thing, you getting your ADHD rewired. Let's get back to the interview. And we are back and we are going to jump right into um, listener questions. All right. So one of the uh, one of my listeners, uh, Precious, asked, how does DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, differ from CBT or is DBT a form of CBT? No, it's a great question. Uh, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, is within the cognitive behavioral therapy family. Um, and it was originally designed as a treatment specially uh, specializing in borderline personality disorder and also suicidal behaviors. The, the, the modifications there focusing on the emotional regulation difficulties, the emotionality that goes into borderline personality and, and similar impulsive behaviors. Um, so with with that there's even more focus on emotional regulation exercises some of the acceptance of discomfort that i talked about it draw you know there's some overlap there um and we draw on it as well um and you know in addition to you know some of the cognitions the self view but sort of managing the emotions to bring them down to be able to Again, engage in behaviors that you want to engage in, be able to tolerate things that there's a degree of uncertainty or ebb and flow like relationships with other people. Just any one of our performances on life endeavors can go up and down. Um, what's interesting about DBT is it was modified by Alexandra Phillips in, in Germany. Um, who she also had a specialty. She worked in a DBT for borderline personality program, I think in a hospital, and they were doing DBT there. And she said, she also had an interest in adult ADHD and said, a lot of the, and DBT has very specific skill modules. So we'll talk about impulse control, emotional regulation, following through on tasks. And Dr. Philipson said to herself, this sounds a whole lot like my adult ADHD patients. And she actually took Linehan's approach and modified the modules for adults with ADHD. Um, and, you know, has done a lot of wonderful research on the model. It's very helpful. And in fact, she just published um, a couple months ago, she conducted the largest ever psychosocial treatment outcome study for adults with ADHD in Germany. Um, and it was also a it's very similar to if you're familiar with the MTA study mm -hmm. for children with ADHD conducted in the U.S. Can you explain uh, this for the listeners that, that aren't familiar? Yeah, the, the MTA study, um, it was a treatment study for children with ADHD. 
and it compared medications with behavioral treatment. So some people, and I think it was placebo controlled. So um, individuals might get both treatments, combination of medications with the uh, behavioral therapy. Um, some people would get behavioral therapy, but be on placebo. So they're actually doing behavioral therapy without medications. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are getting just, you know, regular, regular, uh, you know, talk therapy, talk generic, therapy in the yeah. community and getting medications. Mm-hmm. So you could really look at behavioral therapy alone compared with uh, talk therapy, um, medications compared with placebo and getting like counseling and therapy. And so Dr. Philipson did the same thing with adults. Now, the 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 findings from both studies, both for children and adults, ended up being very similar. At least the 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 headlines were everybody seemed to do better on medications. Medications alone or medications combined with the the psychosocial treatment. I think one of the things that gets missed out on both studies, though, being a psychosocial treatment clinician, is that when you do anything in terms of counseling or looking at behavior change, even if it's supportive. We see this even with other studies where cognitive behavioral therapy outperforms um, an education group or relaxation training, but getting some support if you have ADHD is better than nothing, where in those studies, even control groups did better. So there might be something, whereas with medication and placebo, you're either getting medication or you're getting nothing. And sometimes there are placebo effects and that Mm -hmm. might tie in with beliefs. Um, But with DBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, and then on the other hand, you're getting community counseling, well, you're still getting something that there's probably some benefit there that even if it's not specialized, might water down the differences. Now, that itself is a hypothesis to be tested, um, but I think it might be something where you know, you know, the psychosocial treatments, one, um, what is it that we do special for ADHD? And the other thing is, if we're using symptom measures as an outcome measure, at least I've come to start saying that I'm not sure if our CBT approach actually targets symptoms or are we targeting the functional behavior, uh, impairments, the executive functions in day-to-day life. So, you know, paying attention to something, I don't have an intervention in cognitive behavioral therapy that does that, apart maybe from attentional hygiene, but I am talking about procrastination, but procrastination is not anywhere in the DSM symptom criteria. So it might be that we need better measures for what the psychosocial treatments are doing. But cycling back to DBT, it is a model of cognitive behavioral therapy, behavioral therapy, um, sort of like a cousin, but it, it, it itself has been modified specifically for treatment of adults with ADHD. Okay. And uh, are there, you know, you said this um, research has just published a, uh, a study. Are there any books out for, specifically for DBT and ADHD? <laughs> Um, good news, bad news. Good news, yes, there is a published manual. Bad news, it's in German. <laughs> so. Okay, so either you have to learn German or and, and we, we've been talking with Dr. Philipson about like trying to see if it could get translated to English because there's a lot of you know yeah need need for it. It's a wonderful program, but it just hasn't been done yet. So I'm pretty sure I have a few listeners uh, in my audience who are are native German speakers. Um, Tell so you what, if, I have a copy, so I'm <laughs> serious. Right, I do. So let's let's all well, I actually have a copy of a, a Finnish treatment manual as well. No, do you know German? <laughs> you know, embarrassingly, I took t- uh, two semesters of it in college, but not enough to get through. <laughs> <laughs> I know it says workbook at the end of it, but you really got to work through it, huh? Yeah. All right, let's uh, go back to some of the listener questions. 
Um, what are the most useful exercises for mindfulness slash self-awareness during moments of anxiety? That's a good, uh, it's a good question. Um, and that would be one people who are very versed in mindfulness. Um, any suggestions I give, it would be like sort of recommending stretching for an athlete and viewing that as the exercise where somebody else goes, stretching is, yeah, you do that, but that has nothing to do with actually running the race or whatever. So mm -hmm. same thing with breathing. I'll hear like the breathing exercises, they're, they're like warm-ups. They're not actually the mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But I, I think in dealing, broadening that to talk about dealing with moments of anxiety. Um, so if we talk about that as worried and worry, worrisome anticipation, so cognitively, it's the what thought is going through my mind right now? How am I, you know, how do I view this task such that I'm viewing it as some degree of threat? And it may not be a life and death threat, but it could be, this is going to be a waste of my time. It's going to be a bruise to my self-esteem. What am I anticipating? And are there other ways to think about the task? And it doesn't have to be the polar opposite. Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to knock this thing out. I'm going to knock out the three page paper in 10 minutes. But just, you know, a realistic middle ground, sort of that defense attorney, prosecuting attorney. <clears throat> and one of the things that one of the myths about cognitive behavioral therapy is well, isn't it just the power of positive thinking? Well, not really. I mean, if we're excessively pessimistic, we might look at more likely optimistic outcomes, but gamblers are very positive thinkers, hmm. but it's not necessarily adaptive. In terms of just managing those feelings of worry and anxiety, uh, sometimes the heart rate's going up a bit. There can be tension, um, you know, maybe some adrenaline going through the system. You know, also we'll hear people describe feelings of dread or what we just call UGH, U-G-H. It's just like, ugh. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to do this. Which is um, like just a, a step worse than meh, which is like a yeah, new word yeah. I hear from, from right. a lot of my younger clients. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, part of it is there's some research to say even saying aloud how you're feeling at that moment reduces amygdala firing, the mm -hmm. amygdala being the emotion center of the brain, if you will. Um, so just saying, and you know what, going back to a previous discussion, Saying how we're feeling out loud is a very small exposure step. Mm -hmm. You're saying, you know, I'm really worried about doing this. I'm worried I'm not going to do a good job. Um, and I just, uh, you know, this isn't going to be fun. Some way in saying that out loud, there's a relief that comes with, we're taking action on the feelings. Mm -hmm. So there can be a little bit of a, an emotional relief. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's wiping away all the, oh, now I'm looking forward to the three-page paper. But it, it can turn the volume down a bit. And even going back to mindfulness exercises and just anxiety management exercises, a few deep, full breaths, letting you know the muscles relax a little bit. Because even though we might not be tense and rigid, we might be holding a little more tension than we know than if we scrunch our shoulders up and relax. Sometimes people say, I'm not tense. Then they do an exercise like that or they squeeze their fists and release and they go, Oh, now I can tell the difference now that I released. I yeah, you know, when I, I've gone back and forth between practicing meditation and it's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, I'm I, somehow I'll figure out a way to, to stick with it. Um, I kind of came off a six week stretch, which was great. I've fallen off. So I've, you know, my next right. step is to do it for two minutes. 
Yeah. So I always start with uh, with guided meditation because when I haven't done it for a while, it just it's it helps my brain just kind of get into that that gear. Otherwise, my brain yeah. is just get very active. And right. I, it's always interesting when I think I'm relaxed, then the guided meditation will say something like focus on the the muscles in your neck and relax them. And so I'm paying attention to that specific area, thinking that I'm relaxed. And then I pay attention to that specific area. It's like, oh, I was holding a lot of tension there. Right, right. Or the, the eyes. It's like, relax the eyes. It's like, my eyes relax. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, they weren't. <laughs> right, right. Or even thinking about a task, imagine yourself being able to sit at the desk for, and again, build, bundling in other coping strategies, like rather than working for four hours, working for 15 minutes, mm -hmm. making lowering the bar, making it more realistic. And just another metaphor we use is, you don't have to be all in. We're just talking about a few swing boats. Mm -hmm. 5149. All right, I can do this for 10 minutes. And usually we'll keep going beyond that, but even if we just keep to the 10 minutes, we didn't procrastinate. We can say we did it, we got engaged, and now we've got more of a a reality feedback on the task. And if off chance it is more difficult than we thought, now we can shift to, let me, I need help. Mm -hmm. I need assistance. Who can mm -hmm. I consult on this? But now we're still, that's still part of engaging in the task instead of being anxious and then escaping. And I think so what's, you know, really interesting and important, I think, to understand about CBT is how important language, the yeah. words we use um, plays into how we think and feel. Um, you know, so you were saying that oh, I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling anxious about this thing. You know, I take it to that almost a, the, that next step and looking at it from a mindfulness perspective and saying I'm noticing anxiety. I'm noticing right. tension. So it's kind of creating some distance. Yeah. So instead of you, you being that experience, you're right. describing it. And I That's find it to be point. really, really helpful. Um, and another uh, word that, that I've have come up with to describe some of those boring moments of things that we know that are important to do is I describe them as things that are important, things that are both boring and important. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, it validates the uncomfortable feeling, but acknowledges that this is an important thing to do. Right. And I think that it's an important thing. I think it's, it's to validate what we are feeling, not to dismiss right. our feelings. You know, the idea that feelings are not facts, but they're still our feelings. And so yeah. acknowledging them and, and, uh, but not giving them more power than they deserve. Right. All right. Let me, uh, look at another question here. All right. Um, any advice on catching and reversing toxic thoughts? For example, thoughts of, of worthlessness, can't, nevers, always, uh, for, and for a person who can't afford a therapist or can't access therapy, uh, for any other reason, what would you recommend for self-help? Yeah. I know a good um, book about that you may want to talk about. Okay, maybe. Um, <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, just catching automatic thoughts and laying them bare. What what am I actually saying to myself in my, my head? And this is where it can be helpful to actually write them out, hand write them out, to see them in black and white. Because when they're bouncing around in our head, tied in with the emotions and the next thoughts and the frustrations, they feel accurate. Oh, this is true. But if we see it in black and white, that's when we see the all or nothings, the can'ts, the nevers, the always. And that's where we can bring it in to say, yes, maybe I had difficulty with this thing right now, but I can't say that I never can do this well. And then we can make it more, make it a fairer fight, bring it down to, all right, what am I facing now? 
And the whole prosecuting versus prosecutor versus defense attorney, it's another way to say, well, what are one or two other ways I can describe what's going on now? Doesn't necessarily, again, have to be the power of positive thinking, but just to say, um, I'm having a hard time getting started, but I can try X, Y, or Z rather than I can't do this and I'm going to fail and Mm -hmm. I can't go back to it. Um, There's... You know, there's there's also like the deeper level of you know the the core beliefs of worthlessness or going back to something you said Eric about you know like, I'm not a good writer that could be these core beliefs it's looking at ways to chip away at that now okay um, maybe writing's not easy for me but I can come up you know what I can work on the first paragraph of my book or the mm-hmm. person who you know the, their self-worth the self-esteem gets tied in with a task. Yeah, would I hold somebody else to this standard? Um, I want to do this task and I'll feel better having done it, but this one task need not define me. And but I can do it because I choose to do it. And just coming up with reframes of things to help. In terms of um, you know, for somebody who may not be able to get in, one, I would say maybe not giving up on the possibility of working with a therapist, sometimes local graduate programs will have um, like low fee clinics in which there's a, a clinician in training supervised by an experienced professional um, where that's often, I mean, that's what I did when I was in training. So sometimes there's, you can get a good value and somebody who, you know, is really maybe only has like three or four cases. So you're really getting a lot of time and attention. Um, so there might be some possibilities near you. But in terms of, um, there are some books out there like Steve Safran and his Harvard group who published the Mastering Your Adult ADHD series, both the therapist guidebook, the therapist manual, but there's also a patient guidebook. Mary Salanto's um, Cognitive mm. Behavioral Therapy for Adult ADHD mm-hmm. based on her group program. She has all these sessions and exercises in there. And I don't think it's designed as a self-help book, but it can be you know, a self-guided um, approach. You know, Ari Tuckman's, even though his were never treatment manuals, his integrative treatment for adult ADHD, and he does have his executive functioning, you know, workbook, which mm-hmm. are, you know, good guides to help prompt you along. It provides scaffolding. Um, and, you know, our group, we, that's why we published the adult ADHD toolkit as a companion to the second edition of our treatment manual. We wanted to outline, well, how do we describe this in terms of what people would get f- from us in session to address you know, all these things. And we have some charts in there to help guide you like challenging automatic thoughts. And and I think there's actually probably some cognitive behavioral therapy apps out there that, mm-hmm. and most of these things, they're like daily planners. There's a lot of rows and columns where it's, it's helping disentangling, just like planners help disentangle time and externalize it and order it. Mm-hmm. You know, these thought records, they help you say, what what was the situation? What prompted this? What are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What are the distortions how do I think about this differently? And, and I do think it's important to do those writing exercises that are yeah. that are kind of part of CBT, especially in the beginning process, because just thinking it, you know, we just we it just uses different areas of our brain and it doesn't make it as um, as, as sticky. Um, you know, as far as free resources, uh, there's a, a really good website that has a, a bunch of great uh um, free downloadable PDFs for uh, for CBT. Um, I'm going to give it here, and I'm going to put a link both in the show notes app and on the website. It's um, www.get.gg slash free downloads 2htm 
Um, so don't worry about remembering that if you, uh, you know, if you're subscribed to the podcast, just tap on the logo uh, that you're listening to on your, your podcast player and you'll see a link to that or just go to the show notes for this episode. Um, and they have there's thought records, there's a, a stop worksheet, there's um, thought records for all different kinds of situations. Uh, it's, it's really it's an amazing, amazing resource um, for for both clinicians and uh, and for for clients and patients. Um, you know, probably good for coaches too. So a uh, great, great resource um, that I highly recommend. And I use it in my practice uh, often. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the other questions I think are things that we've already have kind of tackled already. Um, and I'm trying to be mindful of, of time. Um, so are there any kind of final thoughts that you would like to share with listeners um, around kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, adult ADHD, um, any just final thoughts that you have for us? You know what? I, I think um, it's, I mean, it's sort of what I've bet my career on and but that's a little grand, but I remember in the early days when we were doing our first outcome study, I didn't think we were going to get positive results and thinking, you know, it's going to be all medications, but you know, the early outcome studies, our group, the the Saffron Harvard group, Mary Salanto's group, Alexander Phillips and the Finnish group with Marit Virta and Margaret Weiss and Lily, Lily mm. Heckman, formerly out in the University of British Columbia. I think they've moved you know, and some other program. I mean, what's encouraging, there's a lot more being done. And I think it's not just I, th I think these studies are going to get more focused looking at, I think there's an ongoing study looking at cognitive behavioral therapy for adults with ADHD who are also struggling with cocaine dependence. Mm. So I think we're looking at, we've got this umbrella of stuff that works. And, you know, the other thing is, and I think it's been a focus of the CBT program is the name of the game with ADHD is implementation. Like Russ Barkley will yeah. say, ADHD is not a knowledge problem. It's the implementation. Sort of like what many of the questions are, how do I do the cognitive modification skills in my apartment on Sunday afternoon between meetings, between coaching sessions, whatever? Um, how do I get myself to implement this, to go on the bike ride, to do the planner? I, I think that's that's you know, one of the interesting features is the the implementation tactics that are getting integrated into CBT to make it more usable and mm -hmm. user-friendly and also looking at, you know, broadening the scope of who we can help with it and getting more specialized even within the adult ADHD population, including relationship treatments. I think that might be the next frontier. Well, thank you so much. You've been a great resource of just a plethora of information, uh, both from the research perspective and from your, your clinical experiences. Um, congratulations again on your uh, Hall of Fame um, oh, award from Chad this past year. Um, are you going to be at the next Chad conference? I was just thinking about doing a session on cog cognitions and working on a paper on that. So I'm planning on it if they will have me. Yes. You have good intentions. I do. I do. <laughs> well, hopefully those actions will be implemented and we'll see you at the uh, the next Chad conference, which I believe is in California. Costa Mesa, California. Costa Mesa. So I will see you then there in Costa Mesa. And uh, Dr. Perfect. Russell Ramsey, thank you so much. If people want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way that they could reach you? Um, you could Google my name, but my, uh, my email is my last name, Ramsey, R-A-M-S-A-Y, at mail, M-A-I-L, dot med, M-E-D, dot U-Pen, with two N's, dot E-D-U. And for all those people who like, you know, 
their, their brain just went somewhere else halfway through that, the link is always in the show notes. Okay. So you can access it there. Thank you so much for you, helping Harry. my listeners, the rest of the audience, get their ADHD rewired. Thank you for listening to another episode of ADHD Rewired. And if you're new to the show, welcome to ADHD Rewired. We are more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. You can see a full outline of this and all other episodes with all the links and other resources mentioned during this interview at ADHDrewired.com. Help support this podcast by checking out my sponsors. I use Zoom video conferencing nearly every day, and so can you. Go free or go pro. But please, go to erictibbers.com slash Zoom so they know that I sent you. And you can get a free audiobook from Audible at erictibbers.com slash Audible. And next time you shop Amazon, use the Amazon search portal at ADHDrewired.com. A small percentage of your purchase will go to support this show. And it doesn't cost you anything extra. You can also support this podcast by leaving an honest rating and review in iTunes or Stitcher. This really helps other people find this show. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Don't just be a passive listener, be an active member of the ADHD Rewired community. We are on Facebook. You can like our page, but please submit your request to join our free and growing community. And don't forget to check your other inbox because I screen everybody before they come into our community. Looking for a coach? If you're still listening at this point and you answered yes, come to my website at ADHDrewired.com and schedule your free 20-minute consultation or call me at 224-993-9450. Is your school, business, or organization hiring speakers? I provide fun and engaging presentations full of practical solutions that both educate and entertain. Hire me for your next professional development day or corporate training event. Go to ADHDrewired.com slash talks. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next week. Hey, what's going on, super fan? You listened to the very end. Hey, are you interested in joining the coaching group? I have a promo code for you. When you schedule at meetme.so slash Eric Tivers, enter the promo code and yes, I am completely about to make this up. Um, enter the promo code. How about 100 since next week is the 100th episode. If you uh, enter that promo code, I'm going to give you $100 off when you register. Thanks for listening.